Blog Talk Radio. Reason is our weapon of choice. Skeptics know that you do have a voice. Science, not so guilty, defiant is what we know, so it's best to apply it. Feed you information, deposit the knowledge, so you know ignorance is not an option. Welcome to the RSS feed with your host, Rain and Rose. Skeptical superwoman, but in plain clothes. No Jane Doe, nor is she a day old So the core arguments weakly molded like Plato Taking false info like Cato But it should be your J-O You expand your mind like a transit line Nothing is ever true Cause you think so It's evident that you never win Cause the evidence you present is irrelevant In the present sense It's reckless and negligent You never ask questions or the things ignorance is good relish it So we spark the faith Cause you know the truth is hard to take Especially with so many falsehoods And we all the days Ultra reality, we start to face Shout out to the skeptics My freak thinking to live a cow Besides that fire, heat seeking Aim that you shoot to win the leg You weak creatures, Christian scientists To debate evolution Elitists in the government that hate the revolution Armchair, acting that you overstate Their contribution to the movement Cause they say they have solutions So it's best to listen To understand skepticism is the religion And so we get a better vision of how the world works in What we call marvelous to make a better future You know that it starts with us Progressive thoughts, progressive talks The sharing of ideas, the medicine we need Under the dose of the RSSP Say what? Under the dose of the RSSP Hey everybody, this is Rena. It's a beautiful Saturday going on over here. Um, just wanted to um, say, uh, you know, uh, just wanted to say that, um, you know, that um, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are listening to me, that you guys tune in. Um, I've gotten some some really nice feedback um, over time, and I want to thank you guys for that. Um, I got Kim with me, of course. Hey, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. And, um, you know, today we're kind of doing a mixed topic. Um, I know I missed an episode, and we were supposed to make it up with one, um, except that um, Blog Talk Radio decided not to cooperate with us, having a little technical difficulties, you know, for the last um, couple of weeks with uh, some of the the, uh, sort of spontaneously scheduled shows we've tried. Um, but hopefully that will get itself worked out soon. And um, But today we're going to talk about a variety of topics. Um, because we didn't get to do that sort of makeup show about um, Sakibu Hutchinson's book, which you should pick up, Godless Americana, and if you haven't picked it up or, or finished it yet, you should probably finish Moral Combat. Um, you, It's a really, really great book. Um, Kim did a really good um, review of it. And we're going to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, issues and um, that were brought up in it and topics that are sort of related to it. We're not going to read you the book, so you, you're going to have to buy it. I'm sorry. It's worth the, it's worth the money, though. So um, you should definitely pick it up. It's a page turner like a, like a mo. I think it's the, <laughs> it's the, it's the, the slang. Um, <laughs> but I think you'll enjoy it. So, um so yeah, so um, is there anything else that you wanted to add, Kim? I mean, obviously there's a lot of topics and things going on this week. Um, of course, you know, Asada Shakura was moved up onto the um, FBI terrorist watch list. 
yeah. which um, I have some some particular feelings about. Um, there, there is also, of course, the example of the um, or the young girl in Florida who um, is being charged as an adult for a experiment that she did using Drano and aluminum foil. Um, nobody was hurt. In fact, the explosion was very small. But she's being charged as an adult for right. being for being more or less curious and, you know, trying to be scientific. But, you know, um, there are some other stories out there that are pretty troubling. Um, oh, and also I, I, well, oh, and the, um, the hurricane. I'm sorry? FEMA is trying to take the money back. They're trying to recoup the money. They're garnishing yeah. people's wages. They're snatching their For something where there wasn't even a clear language on whether or not the money that was being given out was lo- were loans in the first place. I don't remember ever hearing when Katrina, when all of this was going on, when they were giving the money out, that um, these that this money was expected, you know, to be paid back at right. any time. So it's um, it, it's really troubling, um, especially when some of these people are still, um, some of them are homeless, some of mm-hmm. them are still displaced. Um, yeah. You know. And um, to think that we that we're doing all of that, and also meanwhile there were several people who um, were and probably are still in some cases living in trailers that are you know more or less toxic. Um, right. So yeah, so we you know we we're keeping an eye on these things. Um, uh, Kim went to go see um, Angela Davis, and I'm totally jealous of her. And so maybe Kim could talk a little bit about her experience listening to Angela Davis and some of the things that Angela talked about. So. It was phenomenal, guys. If Angela is coming to a city near you, I definitely would recommend that you get out and go see her, take your notepads to take notes. And, you know, um, she talked about a variety of things. Um, she talked about, you know, um, genderism or gender issues, of course, um, sexism, um, transphobia, homophobia, feminism, and, you know, abolitionism. She, she spoke about a variety of different issues. And like someone brought up on my thread, she also spoke about the um, political prisoners and the fighting that's happening over in um, Palestine and, you know, that what's happening over there in Israel. And, you know, it was absolutely phenomenal. She recommended, you know, several books, but four books in particular that I'm going, that I shared on my wall. Um, One is called Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of Law by Dean Spade. The second book is Queer Injustice, the Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States, Queer Action, Queer Ideas. That's by Joey Mogul. The third book is Gen- I'm sorry, Captive Genders, Trans Embodiment in the Prison Industrial Complex. That's by Eric Stanley. And the fourth and final book is Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence in America's Prison Nation by Beth Ritchie. So I am in the process of ordering all four of those books because I haven't had a chance to read any of them, but, you know, maybe we can add this to our list because we're going to be doing um, a book club, and we're going to be doing the book club via the podcast. And we announced some of that earlier, but one of the first books that we're going to read is The Bluest Eye. 
Yes, and I actually just started rereading that, guys, and um, it's it's really interesting because I actually the first time I read that book I was eleven. I was actually in the fifth grade. It was um, I. Long story short, I was told that I had a a college reading level in elementary school, and so I decided that I was going to try to tackle an adult book. And the first adult book that I chose was Toni Morrison's Lewis Die. And it changed my life. <laughs> it completely changed my life. Uh, well, that wasn't the first book. That was, like, one of the later books. I had started with some younger adult fiction, but that was, like, the real first adult adult book that I tackled, you know? And because um, I was feeling up to it when I was about 11. I was like, you know what? I'm done with these. I'm done with goosebumps. I'm done with, you know, <laughs> R.L. Stein. I'm ready. I'm ready for some meat and potatoes. So I decided I wanted to go for that book. It is really, um, and, and I was really um, sort of, you know, stunned by its complexity. I mean, it took a while for me to read um, at 11, obviously, um, but it was it was fascinating, and, and there were things that I was presented with in that book that I had not thought of. Because although I am a black woman, um, I did not necessarily grow up in the sort of circumstances that um, that put me in contact with a lot of race-type things until I got older. Like when I was in elementary school, for, for the most part, I was sheltered from it. Because I, 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 I grew up in a community that was basically designed for um, interracial couples for the most part. And so, I mean, while I did have some experiences, I did have one, you know, instance where I had a white friend and I was friends with her at school. I thought we were best buddies. And then, you know, it came a time where she was having a sleepover and I was not to be invited. Right. You know, and I found out why um, I was not to be invited, and it was because I was black. And that was, like, my first time really – dealing with that, but even in my mind, I was like, well, then she's just not my friend, you know, right. <laughs> I just moved on, because yes, I wasn't, because I, mean, I didn't really have a context to put that in, and so it wasn't until I was about 11 that I started to kind of develop this consciousness about what race was, and, and that sort of thing, and, and also, as I got older, sort of the racial issues kept kind of sneaking in, so whereas where I was younger, I didn't really have to deal with them as much. When I got older, it started to be more, um, you know, apparent that right. there were that that I was being treated differently in some mm-hmm. instances because I was black, and and black black and female, you know what I mean? And so that was, you know, over time, you know, there were other things. You know, I had um I had one instance where I was at my godmother's house on Christmas Day. And someone decided that they wanted to burn a cross on her lawn. On her lawn, thing, and it was and it was a really bad time to do it too because that was a, a particularly dry year, so the grass was like kindling. But thankfully, it didn't actually spread anywhere. Right. But that was like that was like I was like people still do that like because in my mind I'm like yeah there's still racial issues but who does that. And then it right. happened again. So it was kind of like an awakening in this. In, in the midst of all of this awakening, I'm reading The Bluest Eye. <laughs> so yeah. it kind of, you know, it kind of helped me 
to understand it and kind of contextualize it and kind of um, see how it affected me and, and those around me, you know, why there were certain people in my family that seemed to be very hostile towards white people. You know what I mean? Um, oh. You know, and, 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 and even Jewish people in those sorts of things, and not to say that those things are not, are, are excusable, um, mm-hmm. They're not excusable. It's that you have to understand them within a certain context. Um, oppressed people being in the position that they are, you know, they're not going to necessarily have good feelings towards the majority group. You know what I mean? And um, to expect them to have, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings towards the dominant group that's oppressing them is um, unrealistic. You know? Exactly, and you know, so, just to try to tell you my experiences. Um, besides moving every six months, I, you know, my mom was, you know, uh, basically going from church to church. But anyway, we ended up living out in the we'll just call it the corn and wheat fields, you know, part of right. the Midwest. And I went to school was some of the wealthiest white kids you'll ever meet. Um, I'm mm-hmm. talking about, you know, you know, I won't mention the names of some of these companies, but these are companies that you see on television and their parents own them or were part owners of them. And when you mm-hmm. go to these people's homes, I mean, mansions with elevators and, you know, a whole entire, you know, servant staff. And, right. you know, and that was one of the gifted children, you know, intellectually, you know, advanced and had all the AP and honors classes and all of that. And while the white kids could appreciate my mind, they couldn't take me home because their parents didn't want me coming over because I was of color. And I was invited to two events and, you know, the staff looked at me, you know, some of the black staff, they were like, what are you doing here? You know, and, um, it was it was it was interesting, and where I was caught up, you know, where it became a dilemma for me is the white kids. Some of not all of them, you know, some of them appreciated my mind, but some of the black kids resented me because of the same thing, because I, you know, had a brain, and and you know, I can give you a couple of examples because I even wrote about this on my wall, how in um, a particular calculus class, you know, it was an advanced calculus class, and this was high school how one of the, you know, young white boys couldn't get it. He just could not figure out what was happening. And he was pointed at me and said to the teacher, even she gets it, so I must be stupid. Mm. And I was like, yeah. wow. You know, yeah. and, you know, in my, you know, second level, second year physics class, it was another AP class. And, again, mind you, I was the only black in any of these classes. Right. And... You know, you know, he was just doing some basic, you know, physics um, experiments. And, you know, there's one in particular, and he went through the whole class. Everybody got it wrong. He called on me last, and I got it correct. And he looked like mm. a deer caught in headlights because mm. he could not believe that I answered the question. And he mm. asked me, how did I know that? And I'm like, it's simple. And I just showed him, and I'm like, that's easy. I'm like, that's common sense. And he just mm. looked at me, and it was just... I don't know, but, I mean, it's it's a battle on both sides, you know, when it comes yeah. to that thing. But, um, yeah, I've been called nigger in my face. I've been called nigger in drive-bys. You know, they're driving by and yelling nigger. Um, yeah. You know, and 
you know, what's interesting is most of the issues that I've run into as an adult have been on college campuses, ironically. Mm. Interesting. Now, um, I am, um, you know, and then I, and then the other thing is that I also um, became aware of sort of colorism as an issue around that time, too, when I was, um, and, and I don't mean just from but from reading the book, but from actually observing my, my world, I think that the book helps me to pay attention a bit better, you know. Um, exactly. So it was it was a really it was a really interesting book, and so I'm really like you know happy that I'm kind of reading it again. Um, I read it. I, I mean, I've read it several times, but I haven't read it in probably since I was in undergrad. <laughs> right. Okay. So <laughs> that was probably the last time. And um, when I was, I think when I read it, I was still sort of in that in that um, sort of agnostic phase, you know what I mean? So right. I'm I'm wondering how much different I'll kind of view it now that I'm an atheist, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think um, we're going to read it in a humanist. Different, a different yeah. light. Yeah, so that, I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing how that plays out. Um, almost wish that I had, like, a paper or something I'd written about it, you know, just so I could, <laughs> could have right. something, yeah, right. you know, to compare it to directly, but um, but yeah, it's really interesting. I'm also sort of reading um, Melissa Harris Perry's book too, which I think yeah. has a lot of interesting, um, a lot of interesting um, sort of parallels to some of the things that we've talked about on the show and some of the things that Sakibu's books touch on, you know, exactly. um, in 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 Moral Combat and Godless Americana. Melissa Harris Perry's book is called Sister Citizen. And it's um, a book that kind of looks at um, sort of the social and psychological realities of black women in this country and how they're represented and connecting them to their politics. So it's kind of of in the same sort of vein as The Souls of Black Folk, Mm -hmm. um, except that um, Du Bois kind of – kind of approached it from a more masculine point of view, didn't really deal with what black women were really going through. Um, and, and, of course, I mean, I can't, I can't like, fault him exactly um, for all of that because, for, from you know, even if he were to have been a feminist, you know, how would he, you know, write the experiences of black women? You know what I mean? Right. But, um, but it is interesting, and she actually does use – um, a number of um, black fiction works that are written by black women to kind of help um, illustrate, you know, po- larger points in, in real time. You know, she talks about, um, for for instance, their eyes were watching God and um, connects that to the experiences of black women and, and people who lived through Katrina, you know. And it's very, very interesting. I and I, I probably would have never put those two things together, even though that is probably the most direct, <laughs> you know what I mean, metaphor exactly. that you can link it to. But I, I, it, it, didn't, it hadn't crossed my mind before. So when I read it, it was really, really interesting to and powerful in, in a way to connect those those circumstances to um, the inaction of our, you know, to the lack of response of our government to the real needs of people on the ground and the way that they were criminalized in the same way that, um, you know, Janie and T-Cake, 
you know, experience, you know, being, you know, being forced in a, to be in an inferior situation, you know, um, in the aftermath of the hurricane, you know. Right. Right. Digging, digging the trenches or drink, digging the holes that the black bodies go into while, you know, white bodies are getting a proper funerals. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And so a lot of the things that Melissa Harris-Perry talks about in her book is um, has to do with recognition and shame. And she talks about sort of the psychological work that's been done around shame and um, how that is how that impacts people's um, political power. Um, exactly. And, and, it, and, it, and it does have, you know, real consequences for, you know, people's self-esteem and the way that they engage with the political process. Um, so I, I think it's a really, really fascinating book. There's a lot of there's a lot of places you can go with some of the things that she talks about, mm-hmm. and we don't have time for that today. <laughs> but it'll be something that we'll explore in the future because it is on the list of books that we're supposed to read. I got I got excited. I couldn't wait, and I got started early, so I'm actually reading this book and The Blue Eye at the same time, which is really, which is probably bad because it's probably coloring my, you know, further coloring my perspective on this book when I really just wanted kind of a, you know, like a, a then versus now, you know what I mean, comparison. You know, to my reaction to it, but um, I, I'm I'm liking reading them at the same time because they do kind of I, I see things in them, in them both. You know, I see I read this over here and I'm like, oh wait, this is kind of like that thing that Melissa said, and then I read right. something Melissa said. I was like, oh wait, Tony said this awesomely. I was like, and I read that when I was 11. Hilarious. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's exactly. pretty exciting. <laughs> and, and you know, talking about the shame, that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow, yeah. fear, guilt, and shame. Yeah. And Sunday after that, we'll be talking about, you know, basically um, stereotypes surrounding black women and victimization of black women, and we're going to talk about that in depth. And I'll have Melissa's book read by then, so I'll be able to add some commentary from that in addition to the research that I've already done, but... You know, this book club is... Wait a minute, you've been reading our book? You didn't tell me. So <laughs> I ordered the e-book. Remember, we were on the phone. Oh, right. That's right. Okay, so you've been reading this this whole time. I thought you were reading the other stuff. Okay. No, 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 I haven't even touched right. the book. You know... Oh, um, you haven't touched your book yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. On my... Let me tell you guys. In the middle of my bed, I have about 20 books in the middle, and I have about 15, 20 books on my nightstand. Just, I'll just shout out a few titles to you guys. Um, this one here, Aberrations in Black Toward a Queer of Color Critique by Roderick Ferguson, um, Black Men on Race, Gender, and Sexuality. As a matter of fact, we're going to have a show on black male feminists coming up in June, so um, stay tuned for that. Homophobia, A Weapon of Sexism, Poverty and Race in America, Freedom's Daughter, and with Freedom's Daughters talking about the unsung heroines of the civil rights movement from 1830 to 1970. So you all just hold your horses because I'm definitely going to do a show on this book specifically, Freedom's Daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is written by Lynn Olson. And, you know, I just, you know, I have a shitload of books here. Um, 
Let's see here. I picked up one from Angela Davis last night, Blues Legacy and Black Feminism, and just a whole bunch um, here, you know. So it's coming, guys. You know, it's, it's a lot to read out there. It's a lot to process, and that's why we do these shows so that we can share not only, you know, what we learned in the book, but our experiences and other, you know, research that has gone into these topics from other people because it helps us to grow as individuals. And if it helps us, we know that it can help other people. So that's why we want to share this with you guys. But it's so much coming up, and, you know, we're excited about it. Yeah, we are. It's just, it's a really exciting times to be around here. And, you know, we're we're growing and we're expanding, and we're kind of doing some different things. So it's, this is a really, really exciting time. But um, stay tuned, guys. It's going to be awesome. Um, right. <laughs> but um, in any case, um, getting back to uh, Godless Americana, um, like I said, Kim wrote a really good review, so you should probably go and check out the review, but mainly just go buy the book. And um, right. that's what you need to do. But um but yeah, so Sakiva talks about a lot of different things in um in Moral Combat and in Godless Americana and they kind of complement each other. But um, you know, she she starts off in the beginning kind of talking about um sort of the evangelical movement and sort of um you know, the sort of the, the terrorism that sort of gets in um inflicted upon the LGBT community in particular as of late, um, you know, with the um, conversion therapy, you know, and also um, all of this um, this ignorance around um, birth control and, and abortion rights. Um, and it's, it's a really, really fascinating, you know, um, first chapter. Um, the next chapter, she kind of goes into... Hold on one second, sorry. I'm flipping through, sorry. Um, she kind of goes into um, God's body and science's brain. And I kind of, and I really, really like this chapter a lot because, as you guys know, I am um, I'm into um, science. <laughs> so um, where she's, she she sort of begins a little bit talking about the New Deal a little bit and, um, you know, the this idea of um, possess, home possession and the FH, FHA and um, how the FHA, you know, had very racist policies that actually yeah. created the um, the sort of project the, or the projects right. as we exactly. think about them. Um, yeah. You know, the, it ghettoized. Yeah, it further yeah. ghettoized, rather, blacks in, in this country. Yeah, and people of color and, and, and whites to a certain degree for, for a number of years until they were start, um, you know, immigrant whites, rather, that until they were sort of um, pulled into the American mainstream, um, you know, for reasons of political expediency. And, um, you know, they didn't really want, you know, uh, coalitions to be formed between these poor, um, you know, disenfranchised, immigrant whites and people of color. Um, exactly. And so exactly. and and this is something that happened obviously that that is not new. It it happened, you know, prior to the formation of the FHA, you know, um going back to, you know, the um going back to uh, you know, the end of slavery and the um reformation, you know. 
Um, uh-huh. So what were you going to say? Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say I posted papers about that, um, speaking about the ghettoization of the African-American community. Um, and even Sakivu's book, um, she's talking about the FHA, she's talking about public policy, interstate policies, and, you know, how they build, I mean, how they build highways through our communities, um, specifically in the health issues that come from that. All of that yeah. is spoken about in Godless Americana, and it helps put things in perspective. And we've talked about this before, yeah. about yeah. how you know it derived, and also with the GI Bill, when the GI Bill was first introduced, basically it was given to white males. Females were outright denied, and there were very few people of color that they extended the GI Bill to. For the most part, black men were told no. And this helped right. to create and can help to perpetuate this, you know, wealth gap, and, you know, and this, you know, once we start explaining these things and people start getting a better understanding, they can help both, you know, people of color and non-people of color, well, people of non-color, yeah. help them yeah. understand that, you know, while there are some stereotypes, it's people of color trying to, you know, paint us as lazy and ignorant, that's not true. Um, many people, you know, many white people they benefited from, you know, slavery and indentured servitude and homesteading and, you know, uh, they benefited from that. They think it was because they worked hard, and in some cases that's true. Some people did work hard, both black and white. However, for the most part, they were given chunks of the country. They were given advantages, and but they they aren't being taught a lot of their history either. Right. right, and it's, and um, I'm sorry, and I said Reformation, I meant Reconstruction, but I apologize. Um, <laughs> but the, uh-huh. um, but you know, that's part of, and 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 of course, and on top of that, you can also add um, the um, denial of maids and um, other. I forget what was it, it was maids, and there was and farmers. And um, mm-hmm. I guess there were a couple other um, professions that were selectively left out of Social Security benefits. That's right. For for a long time, which which um, disproportionately affected African Americans and um, reinforced their inferiority in um, okay. in a in a in a in a South that was extremely anxious about preserving white superiority mm-hmm. and black inferiority. And this is kind of one of the things that's talked about in the book, I think, that um, I actually saw on Melissa Harris Perry's show that I'm going to have to get called Fear Itself. It was written by, um, I can't remember, I think his first name is Ira. But it's on, it's on I posted it on um, on your wall, Kim, so they can find it there. But that book is, um, it, it has a lot to do with looking at these policies, these New Deal policies, and um, the sorts of pressures that were going on during these New Deal policies, because the New Deal is one of the most important sort of social legislation that, you know, America has had in its history. But there, even though it was intended to do a lot of good, um, in some ways it actually was, it, it was it was used or... It was abused, rather, to exactly. kind of further um, further cement these systemic inequalities that exist between blacks and whites. 
And okay. um, and 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 in in that conversation, also you, going back to the farmers that we were talking about before, is um, you know, the situation with the Pigford lawsuits, where um, you, you have black farmers who were you know denied, purposefully denied access right. to loans that were given to white farmers, and they were talking about the loss. Of, of black farmland from 1910 to 1982, and from in 1910 there was like one in seven black farmers. So right. One in seven farmers was black, and then in 1982 it was one in 67. And so you had a loss in land of something like 30 million acres to about 3.1 million acres in 1982, and it's now you know decades later and. How much how much land is there left? I'm willing to bet it ain't 3.1 million. Um, and you know, and there's been abuses in in terms of how that money's gotten to people. I think um, they again there there it was a really good interview. I'll see if I can post it on um, Kim's page so that she can see it. But um, you know, it's and then they talked also about Ronald Reagan and the Reagan administration and how um, during the Reagan administration. They actually eliminated the civil rights division of the USDA. So mm-hmm. essentially, all of these complaints and the in the documentation that one needed to kind of make these uh, complaints were essentially being tossed into the waste bin. Exactly. And there and basically um, by law, if you make these sorts of complaints, you um, you risk perjury if mm-hmm. you cannot prove your claims. You risk being charged with perjury. Exactly. And um, and so you know, of course, oral arguments. Go ahead. Right. Right. It, yeah. You risk exactly. But um, but because all of the evidence for some of these cases were systematically being thrown out, there were a lot of people who did not get their claims heard. You know. Exactly. So. That's right. And their complaints heard. So, and um, you know, and it's really important. Um, the farming thing. If you don't think it's important, it's important um, in in terms of a larger problem of black wealth in this country. And you know, um, it was it, it took a significant hit with the housing crisis, but it's 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 been sliding. You know, I mean, it never was great. We didn't really always. We never really had that much wealth in the black community relative to to whites, but it's it's you know it's been systematically you know being crunched, and so now we have less black farmland. We have these farmers who would have passed their land on to their children have had to sell. You know what I mean? And you know they're all of the loans and the money is being given to these larger corporations who are often being paid to not grow things or to grow inefficient things. Exactly. You know? A lot of people don't realize that with some of these farmers, that the government actually pays them not to grow too much of certain crops. They're paid not to grow enough food. Right. And I remember saying that to someone, and they looked at me like I was nuts, but it's yeah. the truth. It's the truth. Right. Right. So, yeah, um, it's, so, yeah, all of this is really important, and um, it, it it forms a, a basis for understanding in in a lot of ways um reliance or the the historic reliance that blacks have had on 
faith communities um, mm-hmm. for, you know, for various things, including, you know, child care, including, you know, education. I mean, a lot of a lot of our schools were church-based. You know, right. we learned to read in the church. We learned to, we learned means of resisting in the church. It was a safe place. It was one of the only safe places, actually the only safe place in a lot of circumstances that blacks could actually meet mm-hmm. and come together with one another. And so this this forms a basis for understanding that tradition. And then, um, you know, she she goes into, um, you know, and, and going back to the land thing. I know I'm going back and forth, but because <laughs> I keep there's so much to there's so much to remember. But she's talking about. Um, at one point, um, you know, going back to land ownership and, and commerce and, and and black wealth, you know, this idea of the church front or the storefront church that we're that most of us are at least somewhat familiar with. If if we don't live near one, we've seen them. You know? mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not actually I didn't actually grow up in Baltimore, but I have a lot of family in Baltimore spent a lot of time in Baltimore, so I know the storefront church very well. Right. <laughs> you know, I've driven by them, um, you know, on many an occasion and um, and have and actually have had have several members of my family who've attended those. And, um, you know, it's it affects, you know, the ability of, of you know, commercial enterprises to be, in, you know, um, attracted to an area, you know, um, but in some of these communities, they have up to seventy percent of the land being owned by churches. Uh-huh. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's something that needs to be discussed because here in Chicago, the latest controversy with five hundred one c threes of the religious persuasion, if you will, the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. He enacted basically a law, well, you know, written um, law that he had written out basically that from now on the nonprofits or churches in the communities will no longer have their water bills written off because they weren't paying water. Their water uh, resources were being given for free. And he's basically saying that now that those that have a million dollars or more in assets, they will have to now start paying their water bills. And now they've gotten together, and they're angry and they're upset about it. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you go and look at investigate some of these churches and look into their, you know, financial portfolio, a lot of them own quite a bit of real estate that they're not paying property taxes on, they're not paying water bill on, they're getting all other types of, you know, write-offs. And, again, if we start taxing the churches and making them pay their fair share, quite a few of them would close down. I guarantee you that. But it's a lot that that people aren't familiar with and that they don't understand. But we're bringing the information, we're bringing you the goods, everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, no one wants to see, a, you know, as an atheist, I don't particularly care for religion. But my my not caring for religion is not, you know, bereft of compassion for actual church organizations that are actually doing good work. 
Exactly. You know what I mean? Do exactly. I want churches that are doing things in the community, you know, feeding the homeless, actually providing, you know, some some basic, you know, needs for some right. basic needs? You know, do I want to see those churches go out of business? Absolutely no. You know? Exactly. But I I um I do think though that I mean for I'm sorry. If you use if you use the roads, I mean these churches have church vans. They've got you know what I mean. They they're they're doing car washes and the whole nine yards. You know what I mean. I'm sorry. These are things that our tax dollars pay for. You know what I mean. And I don't see why. You know, particularly for these larger churches that are making you know millions and millions and millions of dollars in tithes and offerings and you know their for-profit sort of side, you know, I don't see why they can't pay their taxes or why they or why they shouldn't pay taxes or why they shouldn't be able to pay their water. Exactly. I'm sorry. Exactly. You no, should pay it. I, I have you. to pay it. I don't make it. I don't make. I don't make that kind of money. Exactly. I have to pay. I. They're getting ready to um to add another tax to the gas here in Maryland. You know what I mean? So, you know, for the roads. And you know what? They need it because we have, I'm sorry, we have a crumbling infrastructure and Mm -hmm. you don't contribute anything to it. You're not not getting these people jobs, so you're not helping us on that end with bringing in more revenue. So what are you doing? We're giving you all of this for for what? For you to hold on to all of this wealth that you don't share that you don't put back into the pot. You keep robbing the pot, and we're supposed to keep letting you rob the pot? That's ridiculous. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, again, I'm glad that um, Raina brought that up. We are not advocating for, you know, uh, just a total, uh, you know, um, abdication of religion or just totally, you know, obliterating religion. That's not you know, no, because there are a lot. I have to give credit to some of the churches that are out there and actually working in the community and doing, you know, what they're what they were intended to do. You know, with you know the people that are experiencing some difficulties in one manner or another. You know, and there are many churches, especially some of the mom and pop churches, you know, that are really trying. I know some preachers that have small churches. And, you know, sometimes it's like they don't even know what they are going to have for dinner, let alone, you know, what's happening, you know, with their members and the people in the community. So we kind of have to be fair about that. And also, you know, I've talked about this before, about how the secular community, we have nothing in place, absolutely nothing in place to engage the community in any type of, you know, civic manner whatsoever. And, you know, until we put those, you know, um, institutions in place, that, you know, we really don't have a leg to stand on. And that's my opinion, and I'm sticking with it because, again, this is where, you know, some of the difficulties have come in with the intersection of secularism and social justice. And mm-hmm. we have to do better at that. And this is what mm-hmm. I've been talking about for the past couple of years but I'm going to be coming even stronger now because it's time that we, you know, start implementing some of these ideas and actually getting out there, you know, to implement these mm-hmm. ideas. Absolutely. And, and, and again, we, we, we're not advocating for the abolition of religion or the, you know, destruction of all religion. But, you know, if you, I mean, we're coming for you. 
If you're one of those multi-million dollar churches and you decide that you need to build a new church and steeple, you know what I mean, in the heart of a community where there's, you know, chronic unemployment and homelessness, Right and you know and you think it, it, that the um, that the need is to create this you know towering facade to right. you know of you know to God's materialism you know then exactly. um then you then you know you are going to hear from us because exactly. we're tired of it we're ti- we don't need crystal cathedrals. We don't need. Right. We don't. Right. I know. <laughs> we don't need these, you know, giant football stadium-sized churches. Mm-hmm. We don't need those. Exactly. We need educational institutions that provide real opportunity and real comprehensive education that will get our children off to the right start. We need real medical and health services. You know, exactly. we need exactly. we need real we need real shelters That's right. that deal right. with, that that get people jobs and and housing. You know exactly, and and that's the reason why you know again that's why we're not you know we're coming from a different perspective because honestly, and this is just my opinion, and everybody is different, and just like you have different flavors of feminism, different flavors of um. You know, genderism. We have different flavors, if you will, of secularism. And what I mean by that is, as far as me and what I'm trying to do with black nonbelievers of Chicago, as well as black free thinkers, we want to engage the religious community. We want to engage them, you know, because, again, I'm not trying to abolish religion at all. And they have the ear, the eyes, and the minds of the people. And I believe that we can all work together toward the betterment of the communities. Now, you know, will I be leading the congregation in prayer? No. I won't be doing any of that, but if I could work to facilitate a positive relationship with the pastor and the church and the community, and we can actually get some work done because in some cases, you know, one church in particular that I used to attend back in the day, the pastor did not have the help. He did not have people that had the intellectual capacity to help him with some of the programs that he wanted to implement. In addition to that, he didn't have the people there that were willing to volunteer and to help him out with something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, we have the intellectual capacity. Some of us have the funds. Some of us have, you know, just a variety of different things, but everybody can bring something to the table. Because, again, you know, I'm at the point in my life and, you know, in my particular personal journey, whereas your ideology means nothing to me. I don't care. You can worship a brick as far as I care. What I'm trying to do is help clean up the community, help facilitate resources and opportunities for people. That's where my head is now. So I think I've graduated to being a full-fledged humanist at this point, mm-hmm. and I pretty much with anyone because at the end of the day, our ideologies, it means nothing if people are still hurting. Well, I'm not going to say that your your ideology means nothing. I mean, it does mean a little something, right, especially right. if your ideology is twisted. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not, 
Yeah, I'm not going to deny working with you because you believe in Jesus. If we have the same, we have the same outlook on everything else. No, exactly. I mean that's that's exactly. fine. <laughs> right, right, right. And, um, <laughs> some ideologies matter. <laughs> um, just and I'm I'm looking at you, Antoine. Uh, Antoine, uh, hide your kids, hide your wife. <laughs> that guy, you know that guy. Um, what's his name? Was it Antoine Dobson or something? But whatever. Oh, yeah. I don't know. In, case, in case you guys don't know, uh, that guy has um, apparently prayed away the gay and is now um, a Hebrew Israelite. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you, I'll let you guys find the YouTube videos on that one. I'm, I'm leaving that alone. Yeah, but, he'll, um, he'll be on Adam for Adam in about six months. But go ahead. <laughs> Or he'll be on after he'll be on after Elton in about a year, but right. anyway. Um, in any case, um, we're not gonna worry well. about that. We wish him well. We wish him the best, yeah. and if that's the path that he wants to take, then you know I wish him the absolute best. Um, you know, um, that's all I have. That's all I have right now. Okay, you wish him best, move best. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave him alone. I've given him over. But uh, <laughs> not that I didn't give him over when I first saw him. Okay. But I'm giving him over. But anyway, um. So um, so yeah, so um, that was um, that was like one of the um, most interesting parts. I think was kind of thinking about. Um, you know, not that I don't think about these things on a regular basis, but I, I don't think it had dawned on me just um, that the policy of the FHA or the laws that were, you know, enacted around the FHA were racist themselves. I was thinking, I think, more on an institutional level, you know what I mean, like individuals within the institution, you know, having maybe somewhat internal po- policies, whether mm-hmm. or not they were explicit, you know what I mean, right. or not. You know, having um, you know, in, instituting bias, you know, these biased um, arrangements when it came to black people. I didn't realize that that they in fact had, you know, legal, you know, uh, actions out there. Right. You know what I mean? To exactly. To, you know, to limit where you could actually use your loans or those who could actually get loans. You know. So exactly. um, that was that was the interesting part, and then she was also kind of. Um, talking about um, you know public transportation as a, as um, as a, a vector in this sort of discussion about um, you know systemic inequality and, and race and you know race in place and you know race in place I, I've I've been aware of race in place for a really long time that you know that place is racialized I, I always knew that <clears throat> you know it doesn't right. take a whole lot to to for you to understand that place is racialized. But I didn't know I but and until I was looking at this, I hadn't thought about it in other communities, but um in in this, you know, not necess- it doesn't necessarily work at the exact same way as it did in the black community, but it it, it does have a thread, a common thread with the place uh, um that you find Asians, you know, like when you find Korea towns and Chinatowns, you know what I mean? In those types of areas, it has it has um, a, a sort of a, a common thread that links them, you know, to that. So I thought about that too. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, 
So the, so the next time I go to Chinatown, it will not be the same. I'll look at it completely differently. Um. <laughs> right, different view on all of that, right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, um, you know, because I think sometimes, in our, and I think sometimes, I don't know, and I've heard I've heard black people talk about this, you know what I mean? And I've heard black people say, like, you know, we need to be more like, you know, Asians, which is already a problem because Asians are usually propped up as the sort of model minority, you know, and um, which which causes which has a whole host of problems just for, you know, Asians and, and, and the stereotypes that they face, you know what I mean? But it also pits minorities against one another. But um, the other thing that it sort of brought to my mind was that there's often a lot of uh, black people that I hear sort of envious, you know what I mean, of the position that they find, I guess, Asians have with this sort of solidarity they, they view Asians as having. And um, and I think that, I think it's misplaced envy because they don't understand you know, sort of the historical and, and sort of political, you know, cultural forces that they're facing, you know what I mean? Right. And right. why and why they, they've had to adapt those types of strategies, you know? Exactly, exactly. You know, they've yeah. had to adopt those types of strategies, but it's also a lot of sacrifice, you know, that they, yeah. you know, have to make and have made in the past. And yeah. you know, we can have... Some of the same things, but, you know, again, talking about people that are made honorary white people, you know, um, and institutionalized racism. But not completely, though. But not completely. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, not completely. But, you know, they still have some advantages that we don't, you know. Not saying that they have a whole heck of a lot more, but, you know, there is some um, policies in place for immigrants when they come into this country that kind of you know helps them to achieve. Yeah, but that hasn't always that hasn't always been the case, and I think um, I think they have advantages relative to certain other types of immigrants, certainly. Right. But I think that I think there's also there's also you also have to consider also the history of um, you know the history of internment. And oh, the yeah. perpetual and the perpetual otherness, you know, that they've faced, exactly. you know what I mean, exactly. in, in our culture, um, as as being viewed as dangerous and subversive and you know, all of these other things. So oh, I mean, um, we already know about the xenophobia yeah. and, you know, where it is we head in this country. And as a matter of fact, Angela Davis, um, last night when she was speaking, she was talking about the um internment camps that the Japanese yeah. um, had to endure and up there in Alaska and, you know, other yeah. different places. But it and wasn't she, just them. It was, it was. I mean, like, I mean. We, well, even, I know, just the, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the people that most people would know about, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And there were several different groups, but those yeah. are the ones that are talked about the most, you know. Yeah, and um, not just that, but also the history of the, um, the railroad and, you know, I mean, there were actual, um, you know, there were, Chinese people who were brought to the United States to um, fill the gap in uh, slave labor after, exactly. you know, after emancipation, you know what I mean, in, um, you know, South Carolina and other places, you know, exactly. and there's a, and there's a history of brutality and, um, and abuses there as well, 
you know. Exactly. And what Angela Davis was saying, that all of these groups belong with, you know, black Americans, that we should band together and demand reparations across the board. That's what she said. There you go. So, yeah, that we should, you know, um, you know, band together and, you know, uh, basically demand reparations. That way something that went across my mind um, several months ago was basically the people who were affected by, you know, the institutionalized racism in regards to the GI Bill and, um, you know, the FHA and all of that. It should be a class action suit that we bring against them because the reason why they don't want to pay reparations for slaves is because that was like 400 years ago. But, you know, and there are no living, you know, slaves mm-hmm. or direct, you know, officially, you know, first generation direct descendants. Well, that's not true because my grandmother's mother, my great grandmother um, was a slave and my grandmother's still alive. Um, right. But, um, again, you know, those of us that have been affected, that helps create this wealth gap, you know, maybe someone needs to investigate on how we can propose a class action lawsuit regarding that because it's documented. Yeah, it is. Um, Yeah. Well, we'll see if that happens. I mean, I certainly would support it if, um, if, you know, the FHA, if we could, you know, somehow get a class action lawsuit against the FHA. Personally, yeah. I haven't actually been affected by that in any way, so I wouldn't be a plaintiff. <laughs> but well, I mean, you have, but you haven't because I mean, have, uh, right? I have, but I haven't not directly. But exactly. yeah, I mean, my 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 parent, my grandparents were fortunate enough to be homeowners, and um, they probably could have had they, a lot more had more opportunities been available. Possibly, yeah. possibly, but also maybe not. You know <laughs> what I mean? So. I mean, you know, I mean, my my grandparents lived in pretty middle-class black neighborhoods when they moved into their areas, you know what I mean? And uh, given given my grandparents and their and their sort of beliefs and everything, I don't think they right. would have been comfortable in a neighborhood that was majority white because um, my grandparents, particularly the ones from uh, South Carolina, they had, um, they had dealt with racism right. in a big way. So exactly. they weren't going to necessarily go through that. Now, my grandfather, he came from Baltimore, so whatever racism he was exposed to, which was somewhat minimal, you know what I mean, was different. And then my grandmother came from Montana, and she was the only black person in her, you know, beside her mother in the entire town. So racism didn't really play out as, as water hoses and, you know, being called nigger every day. You right. know what I mean? So, right. you know, I, I still don't think that they would have, Chosen much different, right? You know right. I mean? Different experiences, so, different people, and that's that's yeah. what us, you know, who we are, and you know, and that goes to prove that we're definitely not a monolith. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's a lot that needs to be looked at, and you know, we're making progress. But that's what I love about the internet and the technology is that this information. Yeah. You know, it was always there. It was in books and, you know, it was kind of, you know, relegated, if you will, to academia. And now mm-hmm. it's available to everyone. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the trick is to get people to listen, but to also break it down in a way that, you know, your average everyday person can understand it. Right, yeah. Now, um, 
Yeah, so the, um, and, and I guess to kind of, because we kind of brought it up earlier, <laughs> and since we were kind of on the question of, of otherness and what have you, I just wanted to bring up a side of Shakur really quickly. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I, I try not to talk about that particular case too much, you know what I mean, because either you have the evidence or you don't, you know what I mean, and it seems, and it seems that there's not sufficient evidence, in my opinion, you know what I mean, too say this Asada Shakur should have ever been prosecuted, you know, for killing the state trooper in Pennsylvania. But um, in any case, this idea that she is a an immediate danger and also a terrorist, especially a terrorist that we should now be concerned with, yeah. is ridiculous. Exactly. In my opinion. And yeah. and it's and it's and it kind of goes with what um Angela Davis was talking about, um, you know, on on Democracy Now! when she was saying, like, you know, it it does seem in a sense that there is a a push in some ways to associate terrorism with with dark complexed people. You exactly. know what I mean? And it's it's unfortunate because, you know, we have a long legacy in this country of criminalizing blackness. And you know, and unfortunately people who are not even criminals um, who happen to be black are are also lumped in. You know, I mean, Trayvon Martin, he hadn't done anything that exactly. anyone knew of. You know what I mean? They they certainly couldn't prove it, and, and now we know, of course, he did nothing. But, I mean, exactly. at that particular moment that George Zimmerman is looking at him, he has no evidence that this boy has committed any crime mm-hmm. or, that he's, or, or that he's up to any mischief. He has exactly. no evidence of that. He is merely... Seen a dark-skinned boy, and and assumed that he's up to no good because of the the association in our culture with of blackness with criminality. And this has gone. I mean, this has gone on since the beginning. I mean, the this assumption that black people are immoral or that people of color are savage or um, you know hypersexual and all of these other types of things. So. Um, you know, I just wanted to bring that point up because, you know, we talk about that a lot um, on on our shows, you know, this mm-hmm. problem, you know, of, you know, otherizing and sort of, you know, casting these, you know, horrible stereotypes onto various groups. And, um, you know, I, I, I see Asada Shakur as being a victim of that, you know, and I, and, you know, you can say what you want about me. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a... I'm certainly not a stereotypical black nationalist person, you know what I mean, or um, or someone along those lines. I simply am racially conscious, you know what right. I mean? And exactly. I understand the history of racism in this country, and I understand how it plays out in the in the present. And I don't think that as a black person I can afford not to be conscious of these sorts of situations. And so it, it really does trouble me that she's been cast in this particular way at a time where um, incarceration of black women has increased and is and is nearing sort of an epidemic. And you have yes. the uh, suspensions of black girls, you know, out of control. I mean, outnumbering, you know, other groups of, of, of young boys, you know, white, you know, Asian, Hispanic, and what have you put together, you know what I mean, right. is is really um, 
is really troubling, honestly. Um, right. As a black woman, and to see you know see black women being criminalized this way, um, it, it troubles me, and I I, I I'm worried about what's going to happen in the future. Um, and and it's and it seems really and it seems really troubling, especially from the perspective that with the Boston bombings, there was all of this stuff about them being dark-skinned males in the media when there was no official word that they were dark-skinned. You know what I mean? They did, the, and and I think that I think that that on the one hand, this was done purposefully to kind of not have the government try to associate this these two people with being Muslim and being dark-skinned, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, to have people go out and attack these folks. But at the, I kind of wish, on the other hand, that they would have made, you know, maybe if they had the information, who knows if they had the, that particular information at that moment, they released the, the pictures. But I think that's all the more reason to hold on to the pictures, you know what I mean? Right. But, um, you know, to have given more information to the media, I mean, we know that there's one college student who, who is who hasn't been found has mm-hmm. been possibly murdered. There was another man in D.C. who was attacked mm-hmm. by I think some CEO from a company who had right. who had punched him and called him all kinds of names, you mm-hmm. know, anti-Islamic names, you know. Right. And I, I, this is very upsetting for a person of color to be in this environment right now, even even as a non-Muslim. You know what I mean? To hear that these things are going on is very troubling. You know, right. that innocent people can be targeted in this way just because they happen to be brown. Right. Exactly. 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 And Oh, he was know, murdered. I'm sorry. He was murdered. So... Um, according to Brooks. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was murdered. I figure I figured that he probably had been. Um, yes, I got that. Thank you, Brooks. Again. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, but I mean, uh, but you know, but again, that's why we're bringing the information to people to make sure that they're informed and that they can move forward and have the information and do the research. That's why we, you know, implore you guys to be skeptical about everything. Even what we tell you, be skeptical about it, go do your research, um, come to your own conclusions, you know, you know, it, it's, it's important that you yeah. know these things and research them and understand them for yourself. Yeah. You yeah, know, very important that you think about these things. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, you know, <laughs> This community is in its infancy. We have a lot to learn. We have a lot to offer. It's just the beginning, and, you know, it's it's been a journey. I'll tell you that much. And, you know, I've met a lot of beautiful people along the way, and we have so much to do, so much growth. I've seen, you know, a lot of growth in me personally. I've seen growth in other people, and it just, you know, assures me that, you know, we're we're out here, we're doing our job. You know, people are learning from us, and we're learning from other people because I learn from everyone. I learn from the callers, you know, whether I agree with you or not. Even the people who I will disagree with, you know, sometimes they'll say some things that make me go research 
and so I can get a better understanding of what they're talking about. Sometimes that leads me into other things. So it's just, you know, I don't know. I just, you know, thank all of you guys for allowing me to be a part of your life. Yeah. Um, so the next thing is, um, in, in in the next chapter, she sort of talks about Christian fascism, um, which is um, the fundamentalist belief that Christian that many that many Christians have, not all, um, that government and public policy should flow from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And um, and she talks about the sorts of things that are connected to this sort of Christian fascism that's going on, um, you know, you can, you can probably name some of those things yourself off the top of your head without reading the chapter, you know, um, this, you know, the push for creationism. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just read something in the chat room. <laughs> push for creationism to be taught in schools, you know, the um, anti-abortionists, that are um, coming out, and yes, I call them anti-abortionists because I don't believe that they are pro-life, um, at least not the way that I term pro-life. Um, and then, you know, the the other sorts of things, you know, the anti-LGBT you know LGBT mo- movement um, and, and some of the other things that are going on, and of course how um, even though they're not necessarily able to um, sort of overturn Roe v. Wade, um, a lot of them have taken to going to the state level and implementing these policies, um, you know, regulating, um, you know, family planning cl- clinics, um, you know, with things that are, you know, impossible for them to do in some cases, you know, having, having you know, unnecessary, you know, sorts of areas designated for different things or, you know, um uh, you know, this just all sorts of policies that just make it difficult for the for the operations to run properly. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so you know, keep those things in mind. Um, and um, she also kind of talks about um, you know, like the history of lynching, which is really interesting. Um, definitely talks about Ida Ida B. Wells. You know, Ida B. Wells is, you know, definitely a hero mm-hmm. of mine. Um, you know, and you know, just talking sort of about the this this movement and a lot of its language and you know, sort of, you know, comes coming about at a time where we have these this huge recession and there's a lot of anxiety about you know you know brown skinned people taking over and you know white people on you know and their population declining. And, you know, there's all of this language about, you know, apocalypse and end times and all this sorts of stuff. And a lot of that being, again, the result of these long, time-worn stereotypes about the the morality or the immorality of brown-skinned people. Yeah. And it's really it's really interesting and um to think about it from that perspective. Um and it and it does it does sort of make more sense than just the traditional sort of we're headed toward the end times because it does seem like it's ramping up in a way that it hasn't before because you could see how it would have ramped like it would have it you know, maybe in times in the past it would've it would maybe it would have been a bigger thing, you know, at certain points. But like 
you know, we're we're in an age of information, and so you would kind of expect that, you know, that would sort of be on the decline, but in some ways they're kind of expanding, you know? Mm-hmm. And why are they expanding? They're expanding because there's this anxiety about, about you know Mexican immigrant immigrants. I mean, look at look at the sort of um, people who are generally against you know um, giving amnesty to right. Mexican immigrants. They tend to be these evangelical Christians. But right? They, haven't they read their Bible? Haven't they seen you know the the sorts of work that Jesus was supposed to have done in the Bible? You know, feeding the multitudes and, you know, healing the sick. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, yes, feeding, you know, feeding the, you know, the hungry, Um, you know, women and men, but especially women that were being abused and um, accused, wow, Um, being abused and accused. Basically, you know, he was saying, you know, why are you accusing and victimizing this woman when basically it was a woman and a man. I'm talking about the woman that was accused of committing adultery. And, right. you know, you were both in that relationship, but you know, says, you know, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. You know, right. and they were just accusing her, but the man got off scot-free, so they were re-victimizing possibly the victim. And, you know, a lot of that is happening as well. But, yeah, you know, the philosophy of Jesus was about going out into the community and going out into the world and being a better person and teaching other people to be better people and people that you normally would not, you know, associate with or what have you. You know, going out and showing those people some compassion and some understanding and some love and helping them, you know, uh, to become better people and helping them, you know, in their difficult situations. This is important. That's the reason why, you know, with social justice, you know, what we're trying to implement is going out into the community and people that have been marginalized, people that have been abused, misused, mischaracterized, getting out there and showing them some compassion, love, and understanding and helping them to learn how to help themselves. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so, and then the other thing was, um, you know, and this this is also something, um, you know, something that to those of us who've been paying attention should sort of, you know, it be obvious, you know, that, you know, talking about sort of the white nationalist, um, mm-hmm. you know, Christian, you know, sort of movement and these militias, you know, a lot of, um, like the incident of Ruby Ridge and, uh, Waco and and all that sort of stuff has kind of, you know, and and the election of President Obama, you know, are sort of, you know, motivating sort of factors for these groups to right. establish these militias, and you know, Timothy McVeigh, you know, happens to be, um, you know, one of these types, and um, you know, had some had some um. Interesting views, um, you know, some some that were informed by um, their favorite book. I, I like to call it their Bible, the Turner Diaries. Um, you know, and you know, it's still again this fear, you know, of of the of racialized others, of the dangerous black people. Exactly. You know, especially the one in the White House who's supposed to come and get all their guns. 
<laughs> right, who's the Antichrist, the embodiment who's of the Antichrist. The antichrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And um, someone posted a book on Tumblr, and I bookmarked it, and I haven't gotten a chance to read it. I'll inbox it to you, Raina. The only reason why I haven't looked at it or even browsed it is just the title alone pissed me off. And so, <laughs> no, oh, okay. I'm yeah. going to be angry. And it's a racist book, so this was written by a white supremacist. And, yes, we do read those materials because – Yeah, sometimes we school, have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but, you know, to me, in, in, in to be able to build an effective, you know, argument, you have to know what the other side is thinking. Otherwise, what are you arguing against? And you ha- we have to learn how to stop arguing out of emotions and stop debating out of emotions, how to have, you know, a conversation. But there are some people, no matter what you say, you just can't be civil with them. So it's just easier to walk away and let them wallow in file of their ignorance. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, um, Sakiba goes into, you know, sort of, you know, one of the reasons why, America and it's and is kind of dealing with these issues at a time when you know religion is on its on is declining in in much of Europe, you know yeah. and um you know and so it, it's a really interesting little perspective. I encourage you to read it. Just again, I'm not reading you the book. We're just going to go through some of the topics. <laughs> so you should go ahead and pick it up. Exactly. So, Exactly. Yeah. If this really doesn't whet your work. appetite, then I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> so. And I'm telling you guys, you are going to love this book. I mean, you know, you know, I read it from beginning to end, and mm-hmm. you know, and I read it twice actually, just to make sure mm-hmm. that I saw what I thought I saw, and, and it's a good book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. It, it, several people, you know, in our community, so you'll see some names that are familiar to you. Um, Give me some examples. (laughs) (laughs) And there's one chapter in particular in which, you know, um, Dr. Hutchison talks about uh, Dick Jane's spot is hilarious. It's hilarious. And, you know, um, Chapter 4 is titled Prayer Warriors and Freethinkers. You are going to be entertained. You will be entertained, yeah. so it's, it's, yeah. it's a good Yeah, book. you will be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, so don't be surprised if you see some names that look familiar. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but, yeah, and um, definitely some, some really great quotes can come out of the, can be listed from this book. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, it's, it's one you're going to love. Um, yeah. Do you have any? Do you have any that stand out for you? While I'm trying to trying to pull mine out, Kim. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, like I said, I just finished talking about Dick Jane and Spot, and um, I, on the interview that I had with Sakibu, which you all can find in the archives, um, she was talking about um, Alice. Well, basically, her favorite book by Alice Walker, um, Blue Eye. And she said, you know, that was inspired by Alice Walker. And so that's why I would tell you guys, make sure you go out and try to read The blue eyes and Alice Walker. I'm sorry, that's Toni Morrison. I'm sorry. You know what? I'm like, we're about to read that. (laughs) You know know why I'm thinking Alice Walker? Because I'm looking at it in my hand. 
literally in my hand okay. I have Blessing the Secret of Joy by Alice oh, Walker. I love that book. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So, so that's why I'm thinking Alice Walker, guys. Please forgive me because I have an Alice Walker book in my hand. And, you know, we're talking. Get so that out of your hand, Kim. Get that out of your hand. We're talking about the <laughs> Well, I told you I have about 20, 25 books on my bed and about 15, 20 books on my nightstand. So we know what I'll be doing this spring and summer. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, there are, you know, like I say, guys, you know, you go and get this book and, Right here, you know, when she's talking about the white picket fence um, domesticity in this country, um, right here it talks about um, um, a book called Redesigning the American Dream by Dolores Hayden and how it chronicles how 1950s Dream House promoted a culture of consumption and insularity. And when she's talking about this, you know, I think it's very important because we still live in a consumer-based and a materialistic-based culture and how, you know, this has become basically um, the undercurrent of our economy, you know, and, you know, how our economy is artificially um, inflated, artificially inflated. you know, kept above board because of the consumerism. You know, uh, right. you just you have, you have to understand the economy. I would tell people, you know, particularly, you want to go and study a little bit of macroeconomics. Microeconomics is great, but to get a better understanding, macroeconomics would help you to kind of get a better grasp of what's happening. But yeah, you know, um, she's talking about the white picket fence domesticity. You know, that resonated right. quite a bit with me. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really good that was a really good part. I really did enjoy her her Jane Spot analysis. That was really, really, really poignant. Um but I think I think one point I think that um kind of stands out to me, especially in reading um, you know, Melissa Harris Perry, um mm-hmm. is sort of a direct link. Um there's a part where Melissa Harris Perry is talking about um you know, one of the stereotypes that repeatedly comes up when you talk about black women and um, mm-hmm. and sort of the history of our stereotypes, and that is the mammy stereotype. And right. what that comes out of primarily is this post-Civil War environment where, um, you know, Southerners are trying to maintain that, again, that level of superiority, of white superiority and black inferiority, and they're trying to... Um, arrange it in a way that makes it look like blacks were happier mm-hmm. under those con- living under those conditions, not being <laughs> burdened by actually making living wages uh, or owning property, you know. And so oh, this yeah. mammy stereotype arose, and actually, um, and I do remember reading about this a long time ago, and it was one of the things that sort of radicalized me a little bit was. <laughs> When they're talking, um, there was a push by the Daughters of the um, Confederacy um, to uh, and, and others to actually have the Mammy figure memorialized on the exactly. National Mall. Can you exactly. imagine how you would feel if you had to walk past that thing? I think I would egg it. I'd be arrested because I'd have to egg that thing. Cause, there would be no possible way 
that I, as a self-respecting human being, could walk past that thing and not want to destroy it. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, the, the mammy figure with her magpie children, right? <laughs> yes. It was so ridiculous. Um, but, you know, the again, the reason for this was sort of to kind of um, – kind of justify the sort of Southern culture based on the um, subjugation of black people, you know, in, in these inferior sort of roles. And, um, and, and so it, it, you know, it, the, their, their whole lifestyle, you know, their comfort, everything was, you know, based on having black bodies to do these, this work for them. And so it kind of brings to mind a little thing that a little part of what Sakibu was talking about in her book when she talks about the hardworking, the notion of the hardworking Latino. Right. Who happily, and, and this is actually um, um, uh, directly from the book, the notion of the hardworking Latino who happily does shit work that no one else will do is a convenient stereotype that's been evoked by the right to justify worker exploitation and pimp racist notions of the American dream. And um, and then she goes on to say, but white workers who who won't do shit in the light of soaring, um, won't do shit work rather, in the mm-hmm. in the light of soaring unemployment are not lazy, are not exactly. shiftless, freeload are not lazy shiftless freeloaders, but merely protective of their birthright to living wage jobs. And then, and then she goes on to say, American whiteness, the whiteness of Newt Gingrich, an exceptionalist America, would not exist without undercompensated surplus black and Latino labor. Lazy exactly. black workers are the underside, the cultural double of the hardworking Latino, which is, again, where you get the notion of the welfare queen and the, um, the blacks who are lazy asking for handouts. Not the not the blacks who are looking for a not not handouts, but uh, an even playing field. Exactly. You know what I mean? They're just looking for an even playing field. They're looking for a social safety net that gives them the same advantages that many whites start off having. Exactly. But you know, kind of you know, piggybacking what you were talking about there with the manifest Mm -hmm. destiny of white people. Basically, this you know. Some of these arguments that I've heard, and, you know, some of this is in her book and, you know, things that I've read in other places that, you know, uh, there were some white people who make the argument now that white people were disenfranchised during slavery because they had imported all of these blacks to do the jobs, and then there were white people without jobs, and they're using that same argument now with the immigrants, saying that we have immigrants in this country doing these jobs for, you know, pennies on the dollar, or they're exporting the jobs to other, you know, third or fourth world countries for pennies on the dollars when there are perfectly mm-hmm. able white people to do these jobs. So, I mean, the argument has remained the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just it's, it's unreal. But, you know, another point she made in the book, and guys, you know, you need to pick this up, but she was talking about Casey Anthony and how her trial turned into the Salem witch hunt. So you got to mm-hmm. read that. You have to read that. It's really, really yeah. good. Yeah, and uh, another part I liked is when she was talking about um, – um, what is his name? 
sorry, Strom Thurmond. I was wanking for a second when she was talking yeah. about Strom Thurmond and his and you know the how it came out that he had a black. Um, well, child. I guess they called her mistress, but he had a black child. They were calling the woman. The the media called her his mistress, like they had a, mm-hmm. um, an actual you know relationship romance type thing happening. Um, right. But if you actually read the story of what happened, um, it doesn't read like a romance. It reads more like rape. But um, exactly. But yeah, and so you know, just talking about the entitlement that this man, or, or the or white entitlement and how, you know, women, these women who worked in these white homes were not safe. And, you know, you also have to remember that for, a, a, what it was it, like the first, like, well, really for almost, what, two-thirds of, yep. of the first half of, of the 20th century. And, um, and before that, black women's rapes, you know, you couldn't get anybody prosecuted for raping a black woman. Mm-hmm. Hardly. I mean, you could try, but it wasn't going to happen, you know? Right. I mean, it it just wasn't done. I mean, there was no protection for black women under the law from sexual assault, not by black men and certainly not by white men. Exactly. Um, And so that's that's another thing to keep in mind. And, um, and again, it has something to do with these stereotypes and, and this perception of, color and morality being linked. Right. Um, but, yeah, um, do you have any other ones that you like? Um, I'm going to give them a quote that she gave from Alice Walker, and this quote mm-hmm. specifically it says, I found, while thinking about the far-reaching world of the creative black woman, that often the truest answer to a question that really matters can be found very close. Mm-hmm. And... Um, mm-hmm. You know, even in today's world, and, you know, when Alice Walker wrote that, it wasn't like, you know, centuries ago, because Alice Walker is still with us. Um, A lot of the issues that we're experiencing, the answers and the creativity and innovation to kind of, you know, get us out of some of the ruts that we've fallen in, the answers are very close. You know, the answers. Yeah, and I I did like the quote that she used, that quote that she used, from Alice Walker talking about the sort of um, now now I'm wondering if I'm actually pulling this from Melissa or if I'm pulling this from Sakiru, but I think they probably have very close points. So <laughs> this is the problem of reading so many of these things. Sometimes they start to blur together, particularly where they have you know intersecting you know themes. But um, <laughs> you know, thinking about. Um, you know, and Sakiba talks about this. I think it was in Sakiba's book. Actually, it's coming to mind. Talking about genius, genius and art and 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 that sort of world, right? And you know, it and it tends to be the case that when we are educated, we tend to encounter a lot of white male geniuses, and. Nowhere in your in your primary education, and certainly not so much in college, are you ever going to encounter a real discussion about why there are so many white geniuses, male geniuses, relative to white females, relative to you know people of color. You know what I mean? And right. and there's a reason for that. Right. 
There is a reason for that, and there is a reason why, um, you know, even in in discussing it, they they leave that part out. You know, exactly. It it sort of justifies the status quo. You know, when you don't see when you don't see people of color, you know, who are embraced in the art world you know, at the same level, or embraced as geniuses. And so, again, you kind of get back to that four horsemen model. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I do have to say one thing with the four horsemen model. Initially, they it is said that Ayan Hirsi Ali was supposed to be a part of that group. However, I don't think that that necessarily rescues the four horsemen model from being a, you know, a white, masculine, you know, um, you know, heterosexist, you know, point of view. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily rescues that that she was supposed to have been a part of that initially. But um, you know, but I, I do think it's interesting. You know, and in how you can kind of look at that and talk about how genius is formed, particularly in the art world, and see how it has how it has consequences in other fields. You know right, what I mean? You know, like I was like, saying, you know, we have plenty of genius in our community, yeah. except we don't we do. have resources and, you know. Well, that's support. what I was getting ready to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And But the thing is, is that what happens is our genius is basically stolen and exploited in some cases, and other people find a way to profit off of, you know, our genius. But not just that, but it's also it's also been stifled in many ways as well. Exactly. I mean, right. it's stifled. Exactly. It's stifled in many ways. I mean, and and this is where she was quoting um, Alice Walker in Search of Our Mother's Garden, you know, yeah, um, where she was talking about how, you know, there there were uh, there. I mean to. Really, though, I mean, you can kind of, if you think about it really, you know, truly, you can see the sort of genius that, you know, even African slaves had in some sense exactly. because they were able to kind of, you know, or, you know, come up with these ways of resisting their mm-hmm. oppression and, and hiding it in song and hiding it in dance and, you know, dissembling and all of these other sorts of things that they had to do in order to survive. So you can see it there. But, you know, the sort of time that it takes to mm-hmm. to think and to process intellectually and to, um, and to read and to, you know, invent was denied these people exactly. because they were, they were forced labor. They were labor. And you would not have had, I don't believe that Jefferson would have had the ability to do the things that he did. Not that I necessarily, you know, am a big fan of Jefferson. You know what I mean? But I use him as an example. Jefferson is one of the ones that she talks about in, um, I'm sorry, I think it was it Melissa or was it, oh, I was confused. Okay. I don't know if it was Melissa or Sikivu, but I'm going to call him <laughs> Melissa, Melissa to you. Melissa Sikivu. Okay. Melissa <laughs> Kimu. I'm blending their names Melissa, right now. Melissa Kimu. Melissa Kimu. Melissa Kimu. <laughs> was talking about. Was talking about. Um, was talking about Thomas Jefferson and talking about how <laughs> Jefferson. Jefferson, in, in some ways, has a lot to do with um, you know, sort of the scientific, uh, you know, the sort of scientific thought or enlightenment thought 
that, you know, came, you know, generated this idea of black intellectual inferiority and, and um as a as a staple of the of the scientific thought at that time. You know what right. I mean? Because right. there were, you know, he he wrote about, the, you know, he wrote he wrote a lot of things, and and they were not necessarily flattering, you know what right. I mean, to um, people of African descent. And um, but the funny thing about that is, is that he himself would not have been able to write those things mm-hmm. if he was the one who had to produce the labor on his farm. Right. He could not have done that. Without slave labor, exactly. and it was hit, and it was those conditions that limited those slaves' ability to do what he was doing, learning right. how to read and process and put together and create. Mm-hmm. It was it was that that enabled him to do that. But he was so he was so invested as many were then and and still are in this idea of white superiority. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Wow. You know, guys, like we said, you have to go and get these books. And, you know, there's yes, plenty Melissa of Yes, Melissa is the, is the shit, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. And, you no, know, it explains about the wealth gap, the income gap, how it came about um, with um, Sakivu's book. She goes, and specifically about the GI Bill, FHA, interstate policies, public policies, and mm-hmm. a number of other, you know, areas there. And it's just it's really mm-hmm. important. Guys, knowledge is power. And this yes, is how yes. you are able to, you know, fight those battles. Because I've seen, you know, it, in a lot of cases, and even with me in some regards, especially when I was younger. See, I know better now. To know better is to do better. But not being able to formulate, you know, a strong argument or a counterpoint because I knew mm-hmm. what I knew. I just didn't know how to articulate it, and I did not have all the facts that I needed. And this yeah. is why we suggest books and we, you know, uh, we'll uh, post different articles and things like that. We want you to know what you're talking about. We want you to be able to understand. I don't necessarily want you, you know, pointing people and saying, well, listen to this show. She explains it all. You know, and that's wonderful. And we appreciate that. And we want you to keep referring people to our shows. That's you know, right. But, 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 but I want you to be able to stand there and cover every inch of ground that you stand on and be able to stand assured and be able to give a counter-argument or a rebuttal to something that someone presents to you. It's important. I want you to learn. I want you to know. That's why our model is we're here to challenge you to think and learn for yourself, not convert you. We're not here. That's not what we're trying to do. We want to stimulate critical thought. We want to stimulate research. We want to stimulate self-confidence, all of that. We want to stimulate, you know, engagement with the community. That's what we want. That's what we want from you. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you ever want to know what I want from you and what you could do to help me, help me to help you. Help you to help someone else. And hopefully that person will be able to help someone else. We want a domino effect. Yeah. Um, okay, and so, I mean, we we have like 20 minutes left. So <laughs> um, <laughs> skipping ahead, skipping ahead here, because like I said, we ain't reading you the whole book. You got to do that yourself. Um, but uh, there's the part where she talks about um, the Holy Ghost. 
All right. That was funny. Um, and it's interesting because, um, you know, it's it, it, it's it, the way that the way that she kind of addresses it, you know, um, you know, black women, you know, because of this, again, this legacy of discrimination and, and stereotyping or what have you have been in a very different sort of position where they've sort of been seated with um, or they, they've had the responsibility responsibility for, you know, uh, being the face of black morality. A lot of black women kind of adopted this sort of asexual, um, you know, veneer of respectability and joined up with the the church, you know. Um, And so, you know, you see the... um, that in that in order to do this they had to be very good women. They had to, you know, um they had to submit to male authority and all of these other things, which, you know, is still playing out today, um, in churches because the majority of black churches are male are, are male headed. Right. Um and, you know, and so she talks about the sort of gender pageantry. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about how um, you know, it, it, even though you have the sort of that sort of respectability aspect to it, it also reinforces the dominant sort of patriarchal, you know, stereotype that men are rational right. and women are irrational. Men, you know, men typically in churches do not catch the Holy Spirit. Right. But women okay. do, and women right. are actively encouraged to do so, which kind right. of re- further reinforces this notion that women are much more emotional than men, which I thought was really interesting because it really does. And then the other thing that kind of it kind of brought to mind when I was reading this because um, Kim and I had actually um, listened in on a um, podcast a while ago done by the Punk um, Feminist Collective where they were talking about um, sort of generating a, a feminist, black feminist theology, you know, that would – sort of encompass, you know, being single and also having sexual needs, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, I do recall one of them saying that her her father, who was a pastor, had um, once expressed to her that the, um, that sort of release that you see is sometimes about sexual repression. Right. Which given right. which given again the gender pageantry that you see play out in the church makes a lot of sense. You know, the right. sort of you know, being you know, um being repressed sexually and, and having this moment in church where you're then allowed to sort of act out emotionally. Right. Which right. you cannot act out in public, particularly because you'll be seen as wanton, you know, or right. lascivious. That's right. Exactly. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, thing that she brought out there, and it and, and, and it connected to something else that I had thought about because of what we watched. Um, so yeah, so I encourage you guys to check out that podcast. It was really it was interesting. Didn't agree with everything, obviously. Um, right. 
But I have to give them credit because at least they're trying to speak out. And, again, that's why when we talk about certain things, you know, black women were definitely part of the feminist movement. As a matter of fact, you know, you take Mm -hmm. it all the way back, you know, we have been part of the feminist movement since its inception because, you know, black women were working at the time, and in many cases they were working to take care of white women's families. You know, and you just have to look at the movement. You know, there were some people factored out like Florence um, Kennedy. But anyway, getting back to, you know, um, that there, um, damn, I lost my point. Um, (laughs) Well, no, so she was talking also, but she also talks again about, um, about how being sanctified. In that in the church actually gives you a a form of social agency, you know. It 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 allows you some some somewhat mobility and power within that context where political power was not was not something that was extended to us. And though and though we that and though black people were you know especially in the um, post Civil War Reconstruction period there were black people who were sort of getting more political power. They were always men. And always yeah. within in our community was this sense that our salvation, you know, as a as a group was sort of um tied to the domination of black men. Exactly. Okay, I remember the point I was going to make. Um Basically, you know, these women were talking about feminism, and I was talking about feminism in general, how we were part of it. What happened was, with, and we've talked about this before, with the black um, power movement, you know, many black women that were part of the feminist movement, they had to choose between the two, and they chose the black power movement. But now in, in pretty much their voices were silenced and stifled, and, you know, they were... Um, relegated to more subservient roles. And it seems as though some of these women are finding their voice again. They're breaking out and coming back out to the forefront. And while we may not have agreed with everything they had to say, I have to applaud them with at least having the courage to come out and say the things that they did talk about because, you know, again, as someone has stated before, feminism and Christianity, it kind of seems like an oxymoron right there. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have to give credit when it's due. I may not agree with everything. Oh yeah, have no, I wasn't. I wasn't putting them down at all. You know, I'm oh, just. No, 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 I'm no, just no, saying. No, I don't no, understand. Yeah. We've heard from other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean they. Um, they certainly. They certainly have a much more progressive viewpoint, and I can definitely applaud that because, you know, we have to support people who have you know, progressive outlooks, people who are going to support women's rights, who are going to support, you know, you know, uh, you know, transgendered people, to support, you know, lesbians and gays, you know, and right. bisexuals. You know, we need we need those people on our side. You know, we need people who are going to support, you know, social justice justice in all aspects. Right. So if they're willing to do that, whether they call them themselves a Christian, a Buddhist, a, you know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> Whatever right. they call themselves, you know. Exactly. You know, they if they are willing to work with us, we're willing to work with them. Period. That's right. Exactly. So, exactly. So yeah, um, As a matter of fact, I need to find if you have a link for that, send that to me and put it back on my wall so people can um you know, 
um, take a look at that. I think it's educational. Again, it does. You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to agree with everything. Just like people don't agree with everything that we say, we don't agree with everything. You know that we say, and, and that's okay. You know, but you know, yeah. you take what you can learn from um, those videos or these podcasts, and you run with what you can agree with, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, don't have a problem with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really, really good book. I encourage you guys to get it. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, we we haven't even like gone through the entire book, and we've pretty much eaten up, you know, most of the show. So that just goes <laughs> to show you just how like awesome and chock full of information this book is. Um, and don't forget moral I combat. Read, it's a compliment yeah. to moral combat. If you read yeah. both books, it'll make perfect sense to you. Yeah, it will. Um, it will. I mean, I, I had to resist, in some sense, you know, making this thing bleed yellow. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But it was, um, but yeah, it was a really, really good read, and um, she's got some great work in here. Um, she talks about even, um, she talks about even, um, you know, memorials, you know, towards the end, and you know, um, all of that. I mean, it's 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 really great, and she even, you know, shares her own story, which was really shared in in moral Com- moral combat, but. Um, but she kind of hit, you know, goes back into her own story a little bit. Um, right. But I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. And, exactly. Um, I don't really have much else to to say about it. Um, like I said, I'm reading again the bluest eye, and it's so funny that I'm reading that I finished. Like, okay, so I read. I have to make a confession. I have a really bad tendency when it comes to books sometimes to start reading like one or two and then to put them down and then come back to them. And that's part of why I like having, a kin, uh, you know, like a Kindle app because I can always come back to them at the same place. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> but I had started reading Moral Combat and I put it to the side because I was busy doing some other things at that time. And so I finished Moral Combat uh, right before I started um, the the the, um, the second book, Godless Americana, and um, I'm so glad I got to read them back to back. In a way, not to say that like if you don't read them back to back, like you won't get them, but I'm glad that I did. Like I didn't have like a huge wait time <laughs> between reading the first one and reading the second one because I think I appreciated it a lot more. It seemed you know so, somewhat seamless. Um, but yeah, definitely read it, and um, definitely read the Bluest Eye along with us. Mm-hmm. It is an awesome, timeless book. Definitely some themes that you can, you know, kind of, you know, kind of still get into in this day and age. I mean, we're not so far removed from all of that. So, right. as far as I can tell, I mean, it's still there's still colorism in our community. You know, there's still self hatred. Um, exactly. You know, so take a look at it and definitely pick up Sister Citizen because Melissa Kivu is awesome. So mm-hmm. <laughs> the two exactly. of them together. <laughs> so 
that's exactly. I mean, oh man, I'm sorry, Sakibu. <laughs> I it's not that it's not that I don't like I don't I don't I see you as the same person as Melissa, but you got reading you two together is a great experience. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. Yeah. But guys, you know, um, definitely pick up Godless Americana. Pick up Absolutely. Moral Combat. Um, pick up um, Sister, wait, Citizen, Sister Citizen. Sister Citizen. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Pick all three of those books up, and you definitely will be educated and enlightened. And oh wait, and the Bluest Eye. So four books. You got four books to read. You got homework to do. Pick up the Secret of Joy while you're at it. So hey, you 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 ought to. I mean, you know, we're just trying to fill you up right now. <laughs> um, I do happen to know that. I was able to, I couldn't locate my physical copy of the Blue Sky. It's somewhere around here. Or maybe I bar I lent it to somebody. You know how it is. You lend a book right. to somebody and then you never see it again. So right. I was actually able to remember that you gave it to them. Go ahead. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but um if you can't get it, I do believe that a number of libraries um actually have it um available for um e rental. Mm-hmm. So definitely check that out. Um, so I know I know my I know my local library had at least two copies available for e rental. But you know, or just oh, go to or, or, or I mean, and I'm sure if you can't find it there, if you want to buy it, you could probably just go to a, a used bookstore and find a copy. I mean, it's exactly. been around for a really long time. Or maybe you know somebody who. Hasn't you know had <laughs> a whole bunch of people borrow books and not return them? You know maybe they'll be willing to lend it to you for a little while. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And so you know, guys, just get out there, and then you know there are different resources on the internet as well because they have a checkout um, for Amazon as well. So. Um, yeah. You can rent the books from there as well, and mm-hmm. there are other couple of resources for that as well. If you just want to check it out and take a couple of weeks to read it, then you can go ahead and put it on your Kindle, check it out, and, you know, it's only a few bucks, and then you give it back. And, well, they take it back. And but, did you, know. you schedule the date for the – did you schedule the date for our discussion on the um, Blue Star yet? No, not yet. We need to go over the schedule. Okay. But um, okay. you know, but yeah, we it probably but will be the last Sunday that, in June. More okay, than likely, it's going to be the last Sunday in June because we want to make sure you know everybody gets a chance to get their children out of school and graduations have gone by and you yeah. know because you know, it's the start of the summer so you will have a little bit of time to kind of read some books and in between vacations so you know we're trying to take all of that into account because it's the end yeah. of the school year and things get hectic. You know, so we understand. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyway, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, you know, I will be back in another two weeks. Yes, you right. know, barring any barring any uh, any <laughs> interference of you know of of life or uh, blog talk radio <laughs> trying to change its uh, software or anything. Yeah, we'll be back up in about. Yeah, it's a conspiracy, guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and so we, you know, we'll have some more great shows for you. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. And uh, again, see you in two weeks. Take All care. All right. Take care, everybody. <laughs>